Hello everyone, welcome to this week's chapter recap. Now we are looking at Ezra from chapter five on, as well as all of Nehemiah and all of the book of Esther. So let's get started. So in Ezra chapter four, the work on the on reconstructing the temple in Jerusalem was halted. So we pick up in Ezra chapter five with the prophets Haggai and Zechariah speaking to the people, encouraging them to begin building the temple again. And so Joshua and Zerubbabel, who were leaders of the people, get the work back up and running. But another letter is written to the king of Persia, this time King Darius, in opposition to the building. And a copy of that letter is given here in chapter 5. Now, in Ezra 6, it contains Darius's response. He actually upholds the old decree of Cyrus and not only allows construction to continue on the temple, but actually provides resources for it and makes any opposition illegal on pain of death. So the temple is completed in this chapter and a Passover feast is held. Ezra 7 then records a later time under King Artaxerxes of Persia when Ezra, the priest and teacher of God's law, traveled from Persia to Jerusalem, bringing with him priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants. So essentially, Ezra brought workers to run the temple. The chapter contains a letter that the king had given to Ezra, allowing any Israelite who wanted to uh, return to Jerusalem, they, they could go with Ezra at this point. Now, this pagan king wanted Ezra to ensure that the temple was being run properly, and so he sent him with money from Persia to purchase offerings to God. And Ezra was also supposed to bring monetary gifts from the Israelites living in Persia to the temple in Jerusalem. Now. It was widely believed in the ancient world that gods were territorial, and that's reflected here in this chapter. It seems that the king of Persia wanted to ensure that this corner of his territory was properly worshiping its god, which allowed for favor on the land and on the king, and it attempted to avoid God's wrath. And we can really see that reflected in the king's letter. He was going a step further even, and he charged Ezra with appointing native rulers in this new remnant of Israel to have godly judges in the land once again. Ezra chapter 8 gives us a list of the family heads who returned with Ezra. It records how Ezra had to order some Levites to return with him because there weren't enough to run the temple effectively. So the people then, still in Persia, they fast for God's protection uh, for this dangerous journey, and it, God honors that. They arrive safely in Jerusalem and they offer sacrifices at the temple. Now, Ezra chapter nine deals with how all of the returned exiles had actually intermarried with the people groups of the land. Not all of them, but a bunch of them. A bunch had intermarried with the people groups of the land. Now, the text here makes it really clear that this isn't a problem with race. It's not a racial issue. It's a problem with religion. So Israel's worship to God should not be compromised, but it was being compromised specifically by the raising of children who were worshiping pagan gods alongside God. So Ezra goes into mourning, specifically he goes into public mourning and he repents and prays. And Ezra 10, 
records how the people call an assembly in Jerusalem to deal with these marriages case by case. And it happens over a period of about a year, uh, essentially calling for divorce. Now, the chapter closes the book out with a list of those guilty of intermarriage. Okay, moving on to the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter one occurs a bit after the return of Ezra. And it lets us know that though the temple of Jerusalem had been rebuilt, the city's walls and its gates were still in ruins. So it, that leaves the city vulnerable to attack. So Nehemiah prays about this and we find out that he's an Israelite who's working as cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes. In Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah risks mourning in the presence of the king, which no one was supposed to do. We see Nehemiah admit that he was afraid of doing this, but it was for a good cause. So he does it. And when he's questioned by the king, Nehemiah asks to be sent to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and gates. And the king supports him and sends him with letters of safe passage, monetary aid, and even military protection. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, still in this chapter. He rests for a few days and then he inspects the walls secretly. Now, the reason for his cloak and dagger approach is revealed when the work begins on the wall and leaders in the area protest, sending messages to the king in Persia. Nehemiah chapter three gives us a list of who was building what section of the wall, which has actually been really helpful to modern researchers reconstructing what Jerusalem of that time would have been like. Now, Nehemiah four gives us Sanballat and Tobiah's plans to attack Jerusalem, but their plans are leaked to Nehemiah, resulting in the builders of the wall arming themselves and coming up with a system of signals so that they could be ready to defend this city all the while building the defenses of the city. Now, luckily, news of their preparedness actually stopped this attack from happening. Nehemiah 5 tells us that Nehemiah had been made governor of Judah by the king. So he uses his authority to stop injustice that was happening in Judah. That injustice was this, the wealthy returned exiles were not helping the poorer returned exiles and were forcing them into debt slavery so that they could afford food. And worse, this was a debt slavery that they didn't have hope to escape from because they had sold their property first. Now Nehemiah stops this and he personally redeemed many people paying off their debts and demanding that their property be returned to them. We're also told that Nehemiah chose not to tax the people for his food as governors had been given the right to do. Nehemiah chapter six records how the wall of Jerusalem was finished in only 52 days, but that at that time there were no doors installed in the gate structures. We also learn of an assassination plot against Nehemiah by Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. But Nehemiah is wiser and he won't meet with these men. So they try to blackmail him, meet with us or we'll tell the king you're planning a rebellion against him. But this doesn't work on Nehemiah either. So they hire a false prophet to give Nehemiah a supposed message from God that he needs to hide in the temple. Which again, Nehemiah, he, he doesn't buy it. He doesn't do it. Which, you know, that's good because it would have looked really bad if he holed himself up in the temple. Apparently, there were quite a few prophets resisting Nehemiah, but to no effect. 
In Nehemiah chapter 7, the people install gates in the gate structure, so doors, and they make a system of gatekeepers, musicians, and guards to run the gates of Jerusalem. And we're also given a list of people who had come back to Judah from their exile because Nehemiah was looking to repopulate and rebuild the residential sections of Jerusalem that had so far been left destitute. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we see this new Israel gather at the water gate of Jerusalem and Ezra reads the law to them all day while 13 men stood among them and helped explain the law to the people as it was being read. The people then celebrate the Feast of Booths and each day of the seven-day festival, Ezra read to them from the law. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we're told that after the Feast of Booths, there was a day of mourning and confession, and there's this recorded prayer that goes through the history of Israel. And it ends with the fact that they're still slaves. They're not an independent nation yet. The people then make a covenant with God. Nehemiah 10 gives a, gives a list of all the Levites and priests who put their personal seals on this written covenant. So their names, they were promising to uphold it. Now we're told all the people, men, women, and children who were old enough agreed to this covenant. Nehemiah 11 then talks about the leaders who settled in Jerusalem and some of the villages and cities that were also resettled at that point, they're also named. Nehemiah 12 gives us a list, so many lists, of all the returning priests and Levites and then records a dedication procession that saw essentially a big choir along with Ezra and the leaders of the people walking along the top of the wall of Jerusalem. So ancient walls were very wide. They were built to be walked along. So this procession, it goes around the city and stops at the temple where they offer sacrifices and have a service. Nehemiah chapter 13 closes out the book with Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem. He had gone back to Persia for a time. But when he came back to Jerusalem, Tobiah, that old enemy, had managed to get a storeroom in the temple. Nehemiah immediately had all of Tobiah's things thrown out and the room ritually purified. Tobiah was an enemy of God. He wasn't to be accepted by the people. So Nehemiah reorganizes the temple once again when he sees that the Levites had not been given their appropriate portions for their work. And so they had been forced to return home to their fields to grow their own food. So Nehemiah fires the Levites who were in charge of that disaster and he hires new ones. Nehemiah also makes a law that the gates of Jerusalem have to remain shut on the Sabbath because the people were still buying and selling on Sabbath going against God's law. Nehemiah also has to rebuke even more men for intermarriage with practicing pagan women. They weren't even teaching their children Hebrew or Aramaic so they could understand the law of God. Now, Nehemiah cuts straight to the point here when he explains to them that even the wisest king in Israel, Solomon, wasn't wise enough to resist the temptation of false worship. So the people needed to keep themselves from this sin. All right, that brings us to the book of Esther. In Esther 1, Xerxes, king of Persia, deposes his queen for not obeying his order uh, to appear in front of all his drunken guests. In Esther chapter 2, Xerxes full of remorse over this decision, but he can't go back on his order, so his officials decide to cheer him up by finding him a new queen. And we meet Mordecai, who's a Jew and also some sort of Persian official in Susa where this story is taking place and Mordecai's niece, whom he is raising, named Hadassah, or more popularly, 
Esther. Esther is chosen to become part of the king's harem and have a shot at becoming queen, which she does. She does become queen. Mordecai also foils an assassination plot against the king. Now, in Esther 3, another official of the king named Haman is honored by the king, and everyone has to bow to him, but Mordecai won't bow, and angry Haman begins a plot to get Mordecai killed. Basically, there's going to be a day where Persians can strike down Jews for not obeying the king's orders. In Esther chapter 4, Mordecai mourns over this and asks Esther to intercede for them with the king, which is a really dangerous prospect for her, especially because, because Xerxes seems to have been known for his instability and really not favoring wives, if you think about it. In Esther chapter 5, Esther does go to the king, uncalled for, but he permits it, and after hosting a dinner for the king and Haman, Esther invites them to another one. All the while, Haman is planning on how best to savor the killing of Mordecai. In chapter 6, the king goes through his royal records and realizes Mordecai hadn't been rewarded for foiling that assassination plot, so he rewards Mordecai through Haman's unknowing suggestions. There's lots of irony going on here. Esther chapter 7 sees the queen finally telling the king about Haman's evil plot. Haman is executed on the pole he had erected to hang Mordecai on. Esther chapter 8 sees Haman's estate being given to Esther, who then puts Mordecai in charge of it, and Mordecai is given the task of writing an edict for the Jews to be able to defend themselves. Esther 9 records how many people helped and defended the Jews, and Haman's sons are executed as well, and the yearly festival of Purim is established. And finally... In Esther chapter 10, we're given a quick note about how Mordecai rose to second in the kingdom of Persia. So essentially, Esther is a book about God's deliverance written in a very appealing and a really clever way. You gotta love Esther. There's tons of irony in there. But anyway, that wraps up our recap for this week. Pop any comments or questions down below. And until next week, happy reading and studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.